So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Yeah, be let's be real. <laughs> like rarely happens. And I think it's a thing to be aware of. Like people a lot a lot of times will have their blinders on. What's another thing that I was thinking of? I think people just overvalue what they've built. Like it feels like it was so hard to create and it's been such a journey of blood, sweat and tears that you like people are kind of unrealistic about what is the market value of things and so they kind of hold out for too long for the higher price when actually like Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Daniel Applestone. Daniel, thanks for making your time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So, done a lot of interesting things. We're going to talk about Daughters of Rosie later on. Let's let's start back a little bit, though. After your PhD, tell us about the start of Bantam and what it used to be and how it became Bantam and, and some of your adventures. Yeah, okay. So, I had spent six years becoming a material scientist and focusing on batteries and then as a single mom even and running a software business and then i found myself at this juncture where i had kind of checked all the boxes and i had the dream job offer and it was like everything that i was supposed to do and yet it still didn't feel right and so was I this had... was this job offer the tesla one yeah I heard something about that okay yeah. <laughs> and and it was everything that i had been working towards and working really hard like i quit grad school twice and and but finally made it through and got the thing and was supposed to feel fine about it but didn't quite feel right and so i had l- lunch with my friend saul at other lab and had gotten this grant to build desktop size manufacturing tools for the classroom. And he's like, well, you could come run this thing. He's like, I think that you probably have way more fun doing this. And, you know, nobody's running this project right now. So you could just take it over. And it was like a three-year project, a, a DARPA, you know, committed thing. And, and so I ran that and you know, there's a lot of trials and tribulations that happened, but I ended up that the nugget of that became my first venture-backed startup, which became the robotics manufacturing company, which then got purchased and became Bantam Tools and is still now doing great. And with the new, you know, new ownership and leadership and building out a suite of products and furthering it. But yeah, that was... That was like, I mean, I had to do a lot of like bike riding and camping and writing songs <laughs> to like be faced with the thing that you think you're supposed to want and you don't want it and you have to like let those feelings out. And then you actually, you know, the path reveals itself once you do that. So that was my experience 
with that transition. Yeah. Well, and, you know, some of that's pretty high profile. I mean, people who don't know Repetis and, and the MakerBot story there, can you give people just a little background? Oh, yeah. So the person who bought the, so the, the, the company that was formed out of the government project was called Other Machine Company, which I didn't know anything about marketing then, which is why it's named that. But I had, I had gotten the business to where it was, it was fine. It was stable. It was break even, but it wasn't growing very much. And we really needed investment to build another product. And the, the way to growth for, for us was actually to sell the business to Brie. And Brie was one of the co-founders of MakerBot, had done really well with MakerBot. Yeah, hadn't and, he already, yeah. and had he already sold it by then for like 400 million or something? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So he just bought it and now he runs it. It's kind of like Bree's family business. <laughs> and it was an incredible opportunity for me because he knew so much about all the things that I didn't know, which was marketing, branding, sales, like doing something at a big scale. Like I hadn't done that. I had built the thing from scratch, but was learning along the way. I mean, if you remember, I had just gotten out of grad school as a, you know, super nerd PhD scientist. Like I didn't know anything about, <laughs> I didn't know that there was a difference between sales and marketing, <laughs> let alone brand, which is its own thing. And, and so Brie bought the company and I got for a year, like a front row seat on how it's really done. And that was, that was such an amazing experience for me and led me directly to what I'm doing now, which is Daughters of Rosie, which is all about marketing and brand and raising awareness and story and connection. And yeah, it's, it's essentially all of the things that I learned from him put into practice. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm interested, I, you know, listened to an interview and read and, and by the way, congratulations on the, on the recognition from Inc. Uh, oh. uh, magazine there. So how do you think the way that you grew up became an advantage for what you've done? If you have a good story, you can pretty much charm anyone. <laughs> and nobody wants to hear the story that doesn't have like ups and downs. We want the hero's journey. And so <laughs> if you start from that, it is a lot more work to, you know, to go through that journey. But it is such a benefit because there's there's an ability to connect with people. There's an ability to, it's like a platform for being vulnerable about where you come from. And I'm from rural, you know, 6,000 person town in West Central Arkansas. And my dad was in the wheelchair and nobody in my family ever went to college, but there's there was a lot that happened there and there's a lot of discovery. Like if you don't know what you're doing, there's a lot of interesting twists and turns. And so I would say that like having a weird background is a good, mm, it's a good connector. It's a good door opener. It's a good humanizer. And I'd say that even getting to the point where you, you have a background that's really different from other people that you're around owning that and getting to the point where you really are like, heck yeah, that's where I'm from. Even that journey, the sort of interpersonal or internal journey is of value. So yeah, those are the ways I think that stand out immediately about <laughs> being from a weird place. So can I just start with, I don't think it's a weird place. My teenage years in a little farm town in Western Canada of 3,500, and I think it's awesome, you know? Yeah. <laughs> 
you learn you learn how to work. There's a lot of advantages, you know. I moved from a city of a million, we were in Edmonton, mm-hmm. as like a 10-year-old to this little farm town that my mom had grown up in and her mom and her dad and her, his, you know, it's like hundred years, right? Yeah. And uh, like, we've been, we've been out here in the land of good snowboarding in Utah. Right. And <laughs> we were like living in this neighborhood where these kids, like their parents, this kid, my, this kid, we went to church with their parents bought her a car, but she wouldn't go get her driver's license because she preferred to have her mom drive her around. Oh. I was like, what? <laughs> You know, and so now we're like we're out in like Hickville in the sticks southeast of Park City on the side of a mountain where like people wear cowboy boots for real, you know, mm-hmm. and my wife's from California. We lived in, I, you know, used to live in L.A. And, and stuff. I love being here where like, I don't know, people actually do stuff. My kids have to learn. I've got four kids. You know, my kids have to learn responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I think it creates a great work ethic for getting after it in the rest of life. Yeah. It's true. I'd say that in addition to that, I spent a lot of time by myself out in the woods because I'm also an only child. And so if you live 15 miles from the nearest town in the middle of 20 acres and you're an only child, like what are you really going to do with your time? And so I spent a lot of time outside and just the the connection with nature that you have, if that's your foundation, is is profoundly different from most people as well. And so I, I actually carry around a sense inside me that sometimes feels expansive of like the peace of the woods, like when you're in the woods and it just, everything just is. And so in some ways, not being in an, like an urban environment that I, urban environment like I'm in now, there's incredible gifts that come from that as well. Yeah. I mean, you when you're a kid, you're like, this is so boring. <laughs> but now I'm like, oh, that was time well spent. And, and how long have you been out in Oakland now? Uh, Bay Area for eight years. Okay. Yeah. You know, one of the themes we're focusing on this year on the show is how to help business owners get the best multiple when they sell their business. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as business owners, we get pushed so much on growing sales and, mm-hmm. and immediate dollars kind of thing, but mm-hmm. we don't, we don't get talked to nearly as much about what makes this business more sellable. What, mm-hmm. what's going to make this more attractive to a seller? Because, you know, companies of equal revenue, one's contracted revenue, one's not, you know, mm-hmm. contracted recurring revenue, you know, mm-hmm. one is extremely dependent on like the genius who started the thing. Mm-hmm. And the other one is pretty owner independent or self-managing, mm-hmm. right? I'm interested in, in just in your experience, thinking about the worlds you've been a part of, what do you think are things business owners, like let's start in hardware, for instance, right? Mm. What what do you think, what do you think makes a business more sellable? Well, you don't want to have a lot of infrastructure that you've invested in that the purchasing company is going to have. So it's like every dollar that you spend in building like a small scale manufacturing process or even like having a a sales team that's like got a bunch of people on it. Like, like the more you invest in those things that like, if, if you imagine your company getting bought and you're like, well, are they going to use our manufacturing infrastructure? Heck no. So, (laughs) so you don't really need to make those things very robust. You basically need to get it to functional. Like let's build just enough manufacturing infrastructure to get this hardware product to market, get it functional. 
then be then if you know further down the road or if you are thinking about selling your business in the future because they're going to have an incredible process and all kinds of resources where like if you were like optimizing the cost of a certain widget and you're like getting your bomb really low, all they have to do is basically kick your product over the fence to their giant manufacturing engine. And the bomb is going to be like half of whatever you ever could do with it, just because they're consolidating all this purchasing power and existing infrastructure that is just way more than you would have. But I see companies actually investing way too much in the things that the acquiring organization just has, and they're not going to need your thing. And so that's the, for hardware, I think that's the number one thing is like, don't make anything too robust because you're not going to, there's no value in it for the acquiring company. They're not going to give you like a, oh, you know, and this line item is worth this. It's like, nope, that's worth zero. Your, you know, giant sales team worth zero, like <laughs> all of that so stuff. No, this is fascinating to hear this perspective. My question is, if you don't know if you're going to be acquired by a strategic or by like a private equity fund or somebody who's just a financial buyer, mm -hmm. how do you navigate that? Mm -hmm. Don't invest in infrastructure or like, how could you, how could you grow with flexibility? Like, as you're saying that, it kind of makes me think like, hey, don't reinvent the wheel. If you can have that third party to the quality that you need, don't overinvest in building internally because if you get bought by a strategic they're, they're going to have that. And if you get bought by a financial buyer, you mm -hmm. can, you can keep you, you, you know, you probably are tapped into somebody else's scalable system. How do you, yeah. how do you, how do you think about navigating that tension? The way I think about it is, is it critical to our secret sauce or our special sauce? What makes us special? So if you were thinking about like, oh, okay, I could build an internal software team to write the, so the code to run my robot, or I could hire an external software consulting firm. Well, is the software and and IP and things around the software central to what makes you special? If so, invest in it. If it's not, like if it's if it's contract manufacturing of some you know sub assembly of whatever, if that's not if that's not like crucial to who you are, then don't invest in it. I think that's I mean that's how I make the distinction of what to invest in versus not. You know, it's fascinating. It makes me think of, do you know Richard Koch, the guy that wrote that book, The 80-20 Principle? Does that ring a bell at all? No, but I know what the principle is. So so he used to be at BCG and then Bain Consulting. Then he started his own consulting firm called EKR and just pretty obsessive about the 80-20 principle and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Sells it for like 16 million and, and uses the principle to turn his 16 million into like 300 million, okay? Mm -hmm. And his advice is like, you know, you probably shouldn't hire janitors, like all these, all these things that are not core to who you are, mm -hmm. like having it flexible and scalable, it is actually a, a much better principle for 8020. And that's not always possible. But as you're saying that, I'm thinking, yeah, that's, that's, I appreciate that rule of, is this integral to our special sauce or not? Mm -hmm. Is the, a little bit of like a go, no go on, does that mm -hmm. need to be our team or can it be contracted, consulted, yeah. something like that? I think that even, that even relates to what you as an individual do on a daily basis, only do the things that only you can do. Any of the other stuff you should be de delegating. And that like fundamentally will concentrate your effectiveness just on the things that only you can do. You've outsourced the rest. 
And hey, if you have space, that's probably like creative space where something will emerge. But yeah, I, I like applying that to even just like my day to day. What am I doing? Well, if you like, if you like this idea, I think you're going to like this book. But uh, <laughs> one of the things that he says is like the rule, I, I believe it was at Bain was no, you are not allowed, like you are not supposed to be doing anything that a more junior associate could do almost as good. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And what I thought was helpful about that is I think you know, as capable, hard-charging people that don't know anything about statistics, that's why we start businesses, because we don't understand statistics, right? Um, How often do we go like, oh, I could do that better, so I should do it, Mm -hmm. right? And that like, that a junior associate could do almost as well was like really helpful to me of like, oh yeah, everything doesn't have to be perfect everywhere. Mm -hmm. And is that really like, is that my special sauce that I'm bringing to everyone else here, you know? I think that that was one of the biggest like growth moments for me as an entrepreneur was, you know, as a PhD person, I was like, I can figure that out. I can figure that out. Law documents. I can figure that out. (laughs) And then I realized like, but why? Like, why would I do that? I don't need to figure that out. And in fact, someone else is faster. Like, I don't want to be, I'm like, yes, maybe it's like free for me to figure out a template and make sure, you know, like send a contract to the customer or whatever, but I'm not factoring in like how much my own education is costing in that process. And I totally, yeah, I totally got to the point where I realized like perfect, like it doesn't need to be perfect. Nothing needs to be perfect. It needs to be good enough and it needs to satisfy my internal, you know, standards of taste. You know, I have good taste. It needs to meet my standards of good taste. But other than that, like, yeah, someone else should be doing it. I don't need to do it. Yeah. Well, just before we move off this one, what if I'm a hardware CEO, right? And we've actually grown and I wasn't thinking as much, you know, I didn't get a chance to listen to Daniel, give me this advice first. So I've, I have overinvested, but now I'm thinking like, yeah, I'd actually like to sell this thing in less than five years if I could, you know? And so I, I need to rethink this instead of just how much money can we earn? It's how can we be more sellable? So if I, if I do suspect maybe I've overinvested in that, any advice about transitioning or about what, what to do now? Mm. Well, you need to quantify the cost of change. So that's a very difficult thing for a hardware company to do. Like making any change is going to have a cost associated with it. And you could, you could, you know, you could play out both paths. You're like, either I don't change and I get a little bit less in the, you know, price of my company, or I do change and then I get like a tiny multiple. And then there's all this risk that I incurred by doing a change because like once you've got the bus rolling, just keep it rolling for hardware, especially. So I think you have to make that distinction, you know, make that calculation of like, what is the true cost of change? But then the second thing is you're a product and maybe you won't appeal to every buyer, but you only have to appeal to one. And so what I would do is figure out the strategy of like, okay, who needs what we do? And maybe they don't have the biggest manufacturing facility or whatever. Maybe they have a small one. And by combining two medium things, we could have a very competitive thing. So I would just look for the buyer that might, you know, for, yeah, which is like more of a compliment. Like you're not where you're, where the things you've overinvested in aren't truly duplicative in a way that they would be if you were bought by like a large company that didn't have as much, I don't know, they didn't need what you were doing as much as a, maybe a medium sized company would. Yeah, that's great advice. 
thinking about folks in hardware where they didn't they didn't get the exit multiple that maybe they could have hoped for mm-hmm. what do you what do you see as some of the mistakes that happen in the industry hmm. i mean the biggest mistake is not realizing that you should sell your company two years in advance. (laughs) You never want to sell your business until you are able to wait forever. Like you want, you need your business to be in a position where it's stable. It's growing at least some, you know, it's at least break even or growing some, you're able to invest a little bit. But if you, if you find yourself in a position where you want to sell and you haven't gotten to that point, you can't, you know, your time horizon is finite. And so you can never get the best deal if your time horizon is finite. You have to get over the hump enough to where that you're on this steady, slow incline at minimum, if not growing, but steady, slow incline so that you can truly take the time it takes to find the right acquiring partner. And the, I mean, the mistakes that people make are huge. Like, first of all, having to make the decision too quickly. But then the other thing is, you sold your company and you imagined that they were going to keep all the things that you held dear. And actually they just wanted this tiny slice. And as soon as they buy it, they're going to take that tiny slice, apply it to their big business and the rest of everything dies. And I don't actually think that that's a bad thing, but if you were wanting a different outcome, you wanted someone to love your baby as much as you did. Yeah. Be let's be real. (laughs) Like rarely happens. And I think it's a thing to be aware of. Like people a lot, a lot of times will have their blinders on. What's another thing that I was thinking of? I think people just overvalue what they've built. Like it feels like it was so hard to create. And it's been such a journey of blood, sweat, and tears that you, like people are kind of unrealistic about what is the market value of things. And so they kind of hold out for too long for the higher price when actually like they should have just sold it and moved on. <laughs> you know, that that's, that's very common. You hear with, you know, in M&A advisory in general, mm-hmm. you know, somebody will, somebody will want to sell or they'll get approached to sell. So they go get an M&A advisor and like whether whether it's, this is your lawyer people, your finance people, or your true like more investment making style advisory, like this is a common thing of of overvaluing. And yet, how do you help someone have self awareness on it? You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. other than like, I think you're wrong. I don't think it's worth that much. And especially if this is like a client you're trying to keep, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Any any thoughts of like I don't know, just questions that can help people become objective or or data gathering that help, can help people become objective? I mean, one of the things that makes a really successful business person is having trusted people who are outside of the problem far enough, but you really appreciate their perspective. And so I think that one of the things that you can get, like one of the habits that you can get into early on is like building those relationships with advisors who know your business deep enough, but also are far enough removed from it that they can give you real advice. But if you get to that point, you don't have that. Man, you know, it's funny. I never have been faced with this particular challenge, but if it were me and I was really trying to figure out what the like market value of my company was, I do think that I would have to find some sort of third party. Get evaluation done. Yeah. And not like a 409A because we all know that that stuff is like not real. (laughs) That's for a different purpose. (laughs) Uh, Well, for people that don't know, let's talk, you know, not everybody knows what a 409A is. Can you get people the basics? 
Okay, so so there's rules around the price for for stock options. If you okay, so wait, let me back up. So if you have a company, maybe a startup, and you want to give stock options to your employees, well, because there's no public market for the stock options, you have to choose a value, and that value is also not the same stock option price as the stock price as what an investor like if you got an investor in a series A and they paid a dollar per share you can actually sell stock to an employee at an amount that's lower than what an investor would pay for that stock because they're paying sort of like for a future price whereas a 409a valuation is supposed to give you the value today of what the stock is worth today given all the risks that there are given what the market is and the thing that i find hilarious about the 409a is like nobody's going to know your business better than you really but also nobody is going to value business your business as highly as you will so you're kind of caught in this position so you go to you know a firm that can give you a 409a valuation to be like well based upon our vague knowledge that we built of your company over the past 2 weeks only <laughs> We think it's six cents a share, you know, and it's roughly like always the same ratio of whatever investors paid for your last fundraising round, you know, like divide that by 10. And that's usually what your stock option price is. So that's, that's my, my beef with 409A in a nutshell. And it used to be optional, but now it's not optional. You, You have to do it every year. Yeah. Well, when you, when you think about advisors, when you think about the decisions, when you think about being objective and stuff, and you think back, you think back to other machine, what's, what's something you did well and what's something you'd probably do differently if you had to do it over again? Mm, Yeah, we were nimble. We were super nimble, even with our hardware. We probably over, over the course of those five years, we brought to market four different products. They were each, you know, sort of building on the previous one. But that's that in itself is pretty incredible. But the thing that was most incredible was that within each of those four product lines, there's probably only maybe 200 units that were exactly the same because we didn't know what we were doing. We tried to outsource the manufacturing of the of the product at first. That totally didn't work because we didn't know what we were doing. So we needed to bring it back in house so that we could actually iterate more quickly. But we built this manufacturing process that was totally flexible for like, if we discovered that like a bearing needed to be a different size or material or impregnated with something else, it was, it was like a very small amount of products that would have kind of like the substandard thing. And then we could, we could just improve it. And so even though they were distinct products, it was actually, there was a continuum of products and innovation. And we were only able to do that, A, because all of our technicians actually understood the, the like depth of the construction and, and details about the product so that they could give feedback. But we just kept our supplier relationships, you know, they were more expensive because we would buy batches that were smaller than like what a giant company would buy. So we paid a little bit on bill of materials, but we retained this flexibility, which allowed us to deliver a quality of product that blew everyone away, even though we were a tiny company with not a ton of funding. Interesting. Yeah. And then what, what's one thing, if you could do it over again, that you would you'd do better? Oh, I wouldn't have done it at all. 
I guess. Really? <laughs> yeah, because I, well, it started from a government project. And so the thing that we built was what the government wanted. It was this, it was an educational tool. Like it had amazing performance and it was easy to use, but it was an educational tool that the government wanted us to build. And so that was our customer. And a, a robotic startup with the government as your only customer is like not how to start a company. You want to say like, okay, what's the biggest market of people who are needing this capability? What's the, what's the biggest problem that we could solve out there for the biggest number of people that also inspires us? That's how you start a company. You don't start it from like, well, the government said they wanted this thing, but then government sequestration ended our project two and a half years early. I guess we should take the technology and make a business. Boom. Like that's not how you start a business. <laughs> you know, I, uh, it's funny. You talk about that sequestration in 2013. I was, I was doing consulting at the time and I had this, maybe I shouldn't say who it was, but I had a, I had a certain army department client that mm -hmm. I had grown their order from like 60,000 to like 2.8 million. Mm -hmm. And I was stoked <laughs> until sequestration hit. <laughs> mm -hmm. Anyways, that was an exciting time. Yeah. So I want to ask the same question, but about the sale. When you think about something you did well with, with the sale of other mm -hmm. machine versus something that you would do differently if you had it to do over again. Yeah. I wish that I had spent more time processing the emotions of what it would mean to break apart the business and sell it for its parts. Because if, in, and uh, you know, your investors, they want a return and our investors in particular, they, they cared a lot about the mission of our company. They wanted us to bring these low cost tools and democratize some manufacturing capabilities that hadn't been done before. And I do think that it was, it was foolish of me to believe that if I sold the company to anyone, it would remain intact and it would kind of have the same heart still. And so I was, I was more optimizing for that than I was for a good exit price. I believe that if we had separated the software we had built from the hardware and sold the software on its own and the software team... <laughs> that the outcome would have been better financially for the investors. And also probably if the software belonged to a bigger company that had its own suite of tools, it probably would be making more of an impact on the usability for these high precision desktop manufacturing tools. So if I had been optimizing for money and impact, I would have done something differently. Yeah, what, what's your guess on how much more? Approximately like X percent more financial return. At least three X, if not five. Wow. Yeah. Three, three X more than you got. Mm -hmm. Wow. So let's talk about that for a minute. Other people, they have a business that, that has more than one thing involved. What kind of a decision tree? What kind of a decision tree do you think they should be asking themselves of do these things need to get sell, sold together or not? Well, I think you have to know first, what's the value of them being coupled? Like if... If, if, if it's a one plus one equals five situation, keep them coupled. <laughs> but if it isn't and you see like, okay, we've, well, for, uh, for example, with us, it was like hardware plus software. And if you think about like 
how much better could somebody's existing product line be if they just had our special thing on it? And sort of thinking about all the elements that you've built that have value and how much of a multiplier could it be to someone else's business if they just had that little piece that you did? It's kind of like, you know, there are some companies that have built up like huge amounts of data, for example, and they're like, oh, our, our app is kind of trash to Microsoft. They could build our app, you know, like whatever. They could like throw their hundred engineers at it and build it in six months. But the data we have, like now that is a value. Maybe we should be trying to sell the data irrespective of like what the app is and who might buy the app or even our team that built the app. So I think that you have to, yeah, see, is, is, the, <laughs> is the sum total value of like A and B together, is that more than the value of an individual piece in terms of like how much it could help some other business get more revenue from their existing product line? Because that's what you really want. You know, this is like a dumb example, but can I tell you what it makes me think of? Yeah. So I, I'm like, you know, my inner 14 year old is like, all I want to go do is action sports. Right. So, so I, I was out, we go, you know, snowmobile, we're in Canadian Rockies out in interior British Columbia, snowmobile up, snowboard down. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And hadn't checked the coolant. And I don't know if you know anything about how hot two stroke engines get, uh-huh. but we proceeded to melt, <laughs> melt the engine. Okay. <laughs> and I seized the engine like 30 miles out in the back country. Right. Oh, wow. So Luckily, we had other sleds towed it out. And mm-hmm. what's funny is the parts of the snowmobile sold individually were worth more than a broken snowmobile mm-hmm. as a, you know, as a mechanic special kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we're taught to think like that. We're, we're so encouraged for synergy and other mm-hmm. buzzwords that we aren't taught to think. And I, I think one of the things I really appreciate about you is your lateral thinking. I think mm-hmm. that, you know, when I ask you what you would have done better and you said, not done it, like <laughs> this is not... This is not an average thought. You know, you're just the exact questions that you asked about like, well, this one little thing for us, what kind of a multiplier could it be for someone else? And taking the time to think like that, I think is extremely valuable exercise for any business owner because we're so hampered by our own experience, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Well, you know, one of my friends we, we had on the show for many episodes, Shane Snow, we get, did a couple of mini series together. And he is this Wired Magazine, Fast Company journalist, right? and wanted more work. So he invented a company to get himself more work (laughs) and built this tech company called Contently that ended up, now that company is worth like tens and tens of millions, right? Mm -hmm. And he's got a couple of best-selling books, but he was talking about like just the problem of our own perspective. Like they were building this new product and it was like, had all these like exciting, really challenging things, part of it. And then it had some more moderate aspects to the build. And before they went about it, they thought maybe this time we'll actually ask the customers before we build it, (laughs) if they want it, (laughs) you know, and it ends up that the least expensive, easiest thing to build was the thing that the giant corporations couldn't possibly get enough of. And were willing to spend like some X multiple of what they thought they could charge for the entire package. Mm -hmm. They end up not building the complicated part, just the easy part and charge more for it than they thought they could, but somehow felt a little let down that it was so easy and that it wasn't the hard, complicated thing. Dude, I am living that right now. <laughs> I'm so living that with, with Daughters of Rosie even right now. But yeah, the the like trap of your own experience. It's funny because this actually relates to all of the work that I do on equity and inclusion okay. and diversity as well. Because 
it's very hard for people to imagine that someone else's experience of the world is different. Like, like I'm just, there's, I'm never going to be able to truly understand what it would be like for a black female entrepreneur. I never will. And I just, and so I can't use my own experience as a proxy for what she needs or what she's struggling with. And it's the same in product design too. It's like, you, it's a muscle to, to, to figure out like, what if my feelings is me versus you? Or like, what, what parts of this experience am I assuming in, in like an unconscious way that aren't really real and like wouldn't meet the needs of someone else? Yeah. You know, it's interesting thought process. You know, I think, I think that's one of the reasons why travel can be so valuable. Mm. You know, when all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden you're in this country and you're the only one who doesn't speak the language, you know what I mean? And you're like pantomiming what you want, you know? And like, I love the IDEO kind of design thinking stuff of like, hey, go to Barnes and Noble and go to the part of the magazine stand you would never normally go to. Like for a guy for me, it's like, go look at bridal magazines. You know what I mean? Like that's not my... That's not something I've done in life, right? And the mm-hmm. point is like, you're going to come into new ideas. You're going to come into new ideas by being outside of your, by being mm-hmm. outside of your group, right? But this yeah. idea specifically of perspective taking, there's this great documentary that we, we did a bit of work call, for called Beyond Right and Wrong, mm-hmm. where this woman, she went and interviewed Lake Singh. She's amazing. But, you know, she went and interviewed, she did these paired interviews. So she had a woman whose dad had been killed by an IRA bomb mm-hmm. in England and the guy who set the bomb mm-hmm. and he'd been out of prison and she'd forgiven him. And they had like gone on tour together speaking about it. Right. Mm-hmm. And she's got, she's got a woman, this one, I might cry right here on the show. She's got a woman at, from Rwanda and the man who killed her kids, mm-hmm. you know, in the genocide. And she's mm-hmm. got, in Israel, both Israeli and Palestinian parents whose kids have been killed in the conflict. Mm-hmm. And man, I mean, besides like tear jerking to be able to get in the head of these different people. And like, it's really emotionally gripping, you know, for people that would be more easily labeled, right? Our charity, Child Rescue, we started 10 years ago, combating child trafficking. One of the, one of the real different perspective things, like my two biggest perspective things was one, watching a documentary where they interviewed a trafficker mm-hmm. who who's out of jail now and is like fighting against trafficking, mm-hmm. but explaining it from his world and how he was raised and what happened mm-hmm. to these guys that are pretty easily labeled villains, mm-hmm. you know? And I'm not saying I condone any of his choices, but sure. man, it was fascinating to see this different perspective. And then being in Central America, one of the aftercare facilities we were supporting, mm-hmm. and there's this like little girl, same age as one of my daughters and her mom, and we're like, you know, and a couple other little kids and we like, we'd go to the park and you just walk past this like complete abject poverty, like tin roof huts kind of places. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you realize like, oh, when foreigners show up in town and are willing to spend like, you know, 300 bucks to rent a kid for a weekend, the cops who were making, so we were working with some undercover police there mm-hmm. who actually had to wear ski masks. So the other police don't know who they are because there's oh, so much corruption. Uh-huh. And I was like, how much do you make? And she, I don't, my Spanish isn't great. So she's explaining yeah. it. And, and the guy at the aftercare facility is like helping with the math. And I'm like, I think I got that wrong. This is two bucks an hour. Yeah. And you're like, so an American shows up with like three grand for the weekend. No yeah. wonder there's police corruption. No, you know, like, no, it's, it's, crazy. Like, it's like, wow, it became a three-dimensional problem, right? Mm-hmm. You know, my, you talk about young black female entrepreneur. My, one of my, you know, my sister-in-law is a young black female entrepreneur, mm-hmm. right? 
and you know, with all of the same challenges as any entrepreneur and some unique ones. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, totally. And, um, anyways. It's interesting. I think that like the the concept of pro I mean, really being good at product development is is holding in your heart and mind the knowledge that like I, I'm not the customer and then going out and listening, really listening to the people who you're trying to serve. And that, yeah, it's a muscle and you just practice it over and over and over. And there was somebody who said, he was like the first marketing executive that I hired said, there's no truth within these walls. He was like, you got to go out and like talk to the people and like, that is how you build the best products. But I think that so few people are good at it, that most people build products that they would want. And those products are the ones that actually do really well is because like the person who started the company, it's really a product for them. And they are very similar to a huge group of people. And so, you know, voila, it is very successful <laughs> because you built a product that you would love and you are the target audience, I think is much harder to be a person who's starting a business to solve a problem for a group of people that they're not a part of. Like that's the true test of like, can you really learn what someone's, <laughs> you know, yeah. struggle I'm just, is? I'm just laughing because I'm living the pain of that one. Yeah. You know, and, and actually this podcast really helped me get over it, but I, you know, just run investment funds and we worked on, okay, I want boring, reliable income and I want like really significant security, but I want the maximum upside. Mm -hmm. And so about a year ago, we finished prototyping a new way to fund the management company of a large real estate investment trust mm -hmm. and collateralizing it. So it wasn't like a startup gamble. Mm -hmm. And my other partners who ran my last fund with me, mm -hmm. I like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. And I went, I went with like, you know, five buddies. My first two buddies are like, so if I put in a million, what do I get? You know, like they're giving me buying signs on starting with a million each. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I get another handful of guys who are like, this is great. I want in. Right. Mm -hmm. We then stop asking anybody and spend an entire year with lawyers. And like, I can't tell you how many times we had to rewrite the paperwork to the lawyers and explain to them, no, we're not doing that. We're doing something new, you know, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Only to find out it's too complicated for, for people who don't have previous experience running investment funds to realize the magic of it. And all they want to do is just buy a building with us. Like, I just want to own the building with you, Jess. I actually don't want to do the management company and the security and the collateralization. Can I just buy the building? Uh -huh. And it's like, I really feel like I just wasted a year of my life this year, mm -hmm. successfully building something that they didn't, that people don't want. Yeah. And like, I'm sure we could get enough people if we wanted to just fundraise hard forever, we could find enough people to do mm -hmm. it. But, or we could just listen to our customers. And I had Steve Blank from Stanford on the show. Mm -hmm. And he said the same thing as David Kidder, who sold like two $50 million companies. So Steve Blank sold like eight companies, one of them for 8 billion, right? Mm -hmm. And David Kidder and the guy who wrote Business Model Generation, Alexander Osterwalder, okay? Mm -hmm. And they, I would like pitch them the deal after the show. And they would all say, wow, Jess, that's really interesting. You know, I'd really encourage you to go out and just do a whole bunch of like customer <laughs> discovery calls. So I'm like, oh, geez, I guess I better do that. And yeah. <laughs> instead of doing sales pitches, I said, hey, can I show you what we're thinking about and ask you what you really think? Mm -hmm. And I record these like hour long Zoom calls that end up with, eh, I don't like, that's great, Jess. Intellectually, I agree with you. I feel a little uncomfortable because I don't understand it all. Can't I just buy a building? Mm -hmm. <laughs> no. 
but anyway, so that's me. It's fascinating how you do like even also even slight variations in the business that you're building and how you're doing pricing can really like overcomplicate a pitch. And even though you're like, no, but you're saving money. Like this is actually like way better than the way that you want it. The way that you want to do it is like going to cost you 10 X more. And they're like, I want to pay 10 X more for this thing that I want. And you're like, no, but like it could. (laughs) And then eventually you're like, all right, I, it doesn't make any sense, but okay. If that's what, if that's, what's going to be simple and you're going to like it, then that's what we'll do. Yeah. What's funny is the more we went through it, the more we realized, well, geez, if they'll just buy the building, we're going to make way more money, not (laughs) deluding ourselves at the parent company. We thought we would have to do this so that we had enough horsepower to get the word out there. So people would buy buildings with us. But if they want to just buy the, like in the end of it, in the end of it, we're like, wow, we were really giving away the farm. Like that was an amazing deal. I can't believe they didn't jump on it, but I'm kind of glad they didn't, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, one, one thing that you brought up that I want to ask about is when you said the number one thing people should be doing is planning two years in advance, right? For Start a sale. Planning if you're gonna what do you think it? they should be doing? Yeah. That they should not be doing it at the time. They should not go like, I need to sell now. They should be preparing a couple of years in advance. Yeah. What do you think are some of the critical things they should be doing over those couple of years? Well, building the small network of trusted advisors that can actually try to benchmark the value of what you're selling, that's helpful because then you can you can be going back and forth with them around like business strategy in the meantime. And then I would say the other part is actually quite natural, which is get to know your industry. Like heavy duty networking, know everything that is going on, know all the trends as much as you possibly can. And if you, I mean, if, if you're well positioned, that'll look a lot like biz dev, it won't be like something out of the ordinary, but you'll actually, you know, business will naturally come from it. You'll be building these relationships because there's, there is an element of like, what's the value on paper and we can calculate blah, 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 blah. But it's just like, it's trust just like any other sale. And so the bigger the deal is, the more trust people are going to need with you. And so I would say investing in those relationships and making it clear who you are out in the market and what you're about and really being transparent so that you can find the kind of buyer that is not just aligned with what you think the number is, but what your values are. Because it's no fun to try to sell your company to somebody that you just despise. Like it's just going to feel disgusting the whole time. And it's much better to really build relationships with the people who may eventually buy your company. And you're just like building relationships because you're genuinely interested in those people. And you want, like you want, you want to win. I mean, I want to win. People want to win, but you also want them to win. Like you want to be close enough to the buyer to want them to have a good outcome. And I think that just takes time and intention, you know, intentional behavior around building relationships. And, you know, a lot of times it'll lead to other business. I love that. Well, let's shift gears here. Tell us about Daughters of Rosie. (laughs) All right. So as we mentioned previously, I ran a robotics manufacturer. And while I was running that manufacturer, I hired people from the service industry to become manufacturing technicians because we were building something that had never been built before. And so the more we tried to hire people with experience, the more they they just wanted our thing to be the thing they'd already done. And so we said, all right, we're just going to hire people with high mechanical aptitude who really want to learn. 
And we, we did, and it was great. And it opened up who we could even apply to a much more diverse group of people. And, and that turned out like as much of a nerd as I am and an engineer, that piece, the people joining the manufacturing industry via our company and growing, that was the piece that was the most satisfying to me. Like, I just loved it. I loved people understand, like seeing their capabilities through this lens of a new industry that they had never considered before. And after I sold the company, I was doing like an entrepreneur in residence program and thinking about like, what moves me? And I thought, wow, if I could be the vehicle that would help people recognize their value, blue collar people, that would be really amazing because that's where I'm from. Those are my people. And so, so I started exploring, I, I went to the, you know, kind of sort of asking the world, like, wait, why isn't this happening? It did, it happened within our company, but like, is this really possible? Is it possible? And, and with women, I'm like, is it possible to bring non-traditional folks into the manufacturing industry, into entry-level jobs? And so you just like, you I mean, I am a very curious person. So I was like, I'm going to ask the world this question. And then you just sort of like, you break it down into like little questions and, you know, will women want hands-on jobs? Yes. Can we cost-effectively attract women and filter them for hands-on jobs? Check. Will it work for men? Check. Like all this stuff. And you just like work your way through like, what are the most scary, the scariest, most riskiest questions to ask that will, you know, these are the ones that are going to stand in the way of this being a giant business. Ask those first. And so we just went through that whole process. And what we realized is, is we're really good at marketing. We're really good at talent acquisition of entry level. We can find latent entry-level hands-on talent in any region of the United States. So, you know, before we started, you said that you love a good connection, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, so besides connecting you with Amy Stellhorn from Big Monocle, who's been on the show before, uh-huh, uh-huh. my other one I'm going to connect you with is a guy I really look up to who's been on the show for, named Gary Peterson. He's from this company, OC Tanner. They make like awards, like recognition awards for companies and uh-huh, uh-huh. watches and stuff. Mm-hmm. Big company, win tons of awards, large manufacturing base, very deep into like operational excellence and mm-hmm. just, right. But really high on this, the operational excellence principle or lean manufacturing. Some people know it as of respect to every respect for every person. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you totally want to come on one of their tours because it's such an example of what you're talking about. I'm not kidding. You walk around and they joke around about like these manufacturing circles where they're making a ring or they're making whatever. And they'll have like 17 different languages spoken hmm. because, because Salt Lake is a uh, refugee resettlement city. Oh, they, they've intentionally gone after that community huh. and they train them and they've got these great technicians who stay with them for years mm-hmm. because somebody gave them a shot and they've become skilled mm-hmm. and they're valuable and connected mm-hmm. and they feel like they're part of this family. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't believe like the diversity in age, country of origin, <laughs> men, women, like you put them together and, and they don't have any visual continuity, these mm-hmm. teams, except mm-hmm. that they're all smiling. Mm-hmm. And they're like in this environment where their suggestions are taken seriously and tried out and everybody gets to bring their brain to work. And anyways, this is like a multi-decade business that has just gone up and up for like years and years and years. And like clearly proves the point that you're trying to make from my own personal experience of seeing it. Yeah. 
Totally. I would love, I would love to see that. And in part, because I've wondered, you know, it, it seems actually that in the manufacturing industry, the biggest barrier to, to, you know, women and underrepresented people of color, sometimes getting into those industries is actually not that they're a woman or, or anything like that. It's that they don't on paper look like they could do the job. So they're non-traditional. They have a non-traditional background. They didn't think that manufacturing was sexy. So they didn't study it in school or they didn't do any school at all or they went to cooking school or whatever. But inside and like the core of their like capacity as an individual, they could totally be an incredible manufacturing technician. And that translation, that like seeing the person for who they really are and what their capabilities really are is the barrier. It's not that they are a woman. Like they will hire anyone who has any kind of like demonstration of aptitude. And of course there is some bias, but, but what we found was that it was actually more of that. And in some ways, that was the piece that we did well at other machine company and Bantam Tools is we saw the capabilities that these people had that weren't on paper capabilities. And so it wasn't that we were like, oh, we're magic. We hire all these women. It was that we hired people who we knew could do the job. How did you test for mechanical aptitude? You know, it's funny. You just like, you watch people do stuff. Like the way people hold hold tools, the way they pack a box, the way they like move things around. And then also a proxy for it can be what they do in their spare time. Like, mm. are they the person who puts together all the furniture? Have they, you know, ever built a deck? Did they install a sink? Like all those kinds of things, a lot of people do. And they don't realize that like that, that thing that you're doing, like following the instructions, like testing out all the stuff, like making sure there's good fit and finish. Those are the gateway to a career in manufacturing. Okay, that is so funny. So my wife went to university for like early childhood development, right? Mm-hmm. But my friends just laugh at how unintimidated she is about home stuff. Uh-huh. Like she, we had like our first kid and she wanted a TV, like home center thing, mm-hmm. but she couldn't find one that she thought was cute. Mm-hmm. So she just went to the hardware store and started buying random stuff like L brackets <laughs> and things. And then that had to be the most unique TV center <laughs> of all time, mm-hmm. but it completely worked. And she just, you know, she just logically Legoed one together from the hardware store, you mm-hmm. know, and my friends who like, you know, or had, are more trained on from a traditional building background or something like that, you know, did carpentry with their dad. And my wife's like a latchkey kid from LA, you know, living in the apartments kind of, kind of thing. Right. So mm-hmm. she just got after it. And anyways, she's made so many things in our homes and we've resold our homes for so much more because she's tinkered and she's like on Pinterest seeing something cute. Mm. And then she doesn't care that she doesn't know how to make it. She just goes and makes it anyways, you know? Yeah, totally. And I think that's the part that I'm really excited about is like, if people don't have some sort of artificial emotional barrier, like they feel capable, they, f- they have an identity that says, I can figure this out. Like, that's really what you need. If people don't have that, and they don't, you know, they're not very handy it's really hard for them (laughs) to get started in hands-on stuff. But the cool thing is there's so much you can do by yourself at home, give yourself little projects to build up to it that, you know, and you don't have to go back to school. You might not have time to go back to school or the resources to go back to school, but there's so many things that you could do around the house. Like 
I want to build an entertainment center. Like, how would I, like, let's go investigate. And there's so many plans online now too, for things like that. That's all it is. That's at the core of like a good manufacturing technician. And most manufacturing technicians, like back in the day, they were just like farm kids. So, you know, (laughs) it's like, how do you get that now? So if somebody comes to daughtersofrosie.com, who's the ideal client? Who's the ideal employer that you want to work Mm. with? So we like employers who are hiring at high volume, either they're scaling, they're, they're scaling some sort of production on the order of like a hundred people a year that are in the entry level zone, like entry level technicians or general labor, or even, you know, maintenance folks, things like that. So the jobs need to be truly entry level in terms of you will hire someone who has mechanical aptitude, but who hasn't ever had a manufacturing technician level one on their resume. So that's it. That's really it. And then geographically, where geographically, it doesn't matter. So we just continental US or yeah, Canada con- or what? Continental US is where we're working right now. Okay. A facility needs to be at least like near adjacent to at least like 10,000 people within kind of like a, a 30 minute drive <laughs> of the plant location. So yeah, that's, that's basically it. But I will say that the people that we attract are looking for stability and growth potential. So if you're just hiring temps for general labor jobs, that's not for us because we're, we are finding people who are, you know, they're in the service industry. They've been, maybe they were like working as a caterer at the airport or something like that. They've, they've been, you know, printing t-shirts or something and, but they're looking for a real foot in the door for an actual career. So your company needs to have that. It can't just be like, get in for six months. Now you're done. You know, Christmas tree farm type stuff. Okay. I love it. <laughs> well, this has been really fun. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, this was great. I had no idea where it would go. And I've been like pleasantly surprised. <laughs> That's funny. I never know when any of these are going to go and I'm the one running them. <laughs> Maybe let's end with, What's one of the best pieces of advice you ever received? The best piece of advice is is more just like a principle. Okay. Conflict is a clue. So a lot of people run away from conflict, but if you really sit with the conflict and work with it, it is the pointer to an opportunity for greater connection and insight and growth within yourself. That's it. It's great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There you go. (laughs) Thanks. uh, Yeah. Thanks everybody for listening.